The Bharatvarta Weekly is where we discuss the week's most relevant news and events in a calm, measured and interesting way, live with your favorite guests. So if you want to really appreciate the news and actually benefit from it, skip the news and watch the weekly. Namaste and welcome to the Bharatvarta Weekly. I'm Roshan Karipa. I have with me Abhishek Paul and Nirav Kanodra to walk you through the news and events of the week that was. Uh, this week, we'll be talking about quite a few things. Uh, uh, Rahul Gandhi has undertaken an all-India trip. He's calling the Bharat Jodo Yatra. Uh, and there was some controversy around his meetings uh, in Tamil Nadu. Uh, the Indian and Chinese troops have decided to pull back from a disputed border area. Uh, and of course, uh, in the UK, uh, a new prime minister has taken charge. And in the same week, we have uh, the death of Queen Elizabeth as well. Uh, and close also home, uh, Biden has approved, uh, President Biden has approved a $450 million package to Pakistan as well. All of this and more on this weekly. Hey, Abhishek. Hey, Nirav. How's it going? All good, all good. Fantastic to have you guys here. Uh, before we talk about the news uh, for this week, let's uh, let's discuss the couple of episodes that we put out uh, last week. Um, I think one of my recent favorite episodes was uh, the one featuring Professor Desi Raju. Uh, you know, he is one of India's most highly cited uh, scientists. And uh, he also has uh, a, a deep interest in India's civilizational ethos. And, you know, I mean, the, the conversation with uh, Sharan Shetty on, you know, how our constitution was framed and you know how what what impact it has had in terms of governance and social cultural etc uh was really really fascinating uh so definitely check that out uh, we're also putting out a lot of snippets and shots on our uh, social media channels as well uh do check it out uh and then we had an old friend of uh, bharatvarta uh, ashish chandorkar returning to the podcast uh, talking about international trade uh abhishek did you catch this episode yeah definitely ashish episodes are not to be missed right <laughs> so yeah i think it was a really uh, good episode uh, covering a lot of what entails his current uh, job right at the Indian mission in Geneva. Uh, so he explained, uh, uh, I mean, I think as you st- said in the conversation, you wanted a sort of uh, view which even people who are laymen could understand. So he was a, he explained very nicely uh, the importance of uh, international trade for any economy, how historically uh, countries who are today uh, vocal proponents of trade, you know, have used various kinds of barriers and tariffs in the past, right, to gain their dominant position. He also explained a little bit about, you know, the internal uh, recording in progress of the WTO, right, um, in terms of uh, how there are typically no votes that happen, right, but it, everything is often consensus-based, but takes a lot of time. So, yeah, I think um, there are many other topics as well. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend all those who have interest in this area to check this. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a great primer, actually. I mean, especially for me, I mean, I, I've, you know, heard bits and pieces of this stuff, right, whether it's the WTO or the FTAs and the tariffs and so on. Uh, it was good to sort of get a very comprehensive perspective perspective on this and how uh, international trade can be such a leverage, right? Especially post-COVID. So if you haven't already checked out these episodes, uh, definitely listen to them on your favorite podcast platforms. Uh, Also, like always, please like, share, subscribe, uh, rate and review uh, on your favorite podcast platforms. It helps a lot more people discover our content. Thank you so much uh, for all of your support thus far. Uh, Moving on to the first piece of news uh, for this week. Rahul Gandhi has undertaken an all-India trip he's calling the Bharat Jodo Yatra. 
The Yatra formally began on September 7th from Kanyakumari in Tamil Nadu and is currently progressing through Kerala's Thiruvananthapuram district. The Yatra will enter Alapula on September 17th and pass through Ernakulam district on September 21st and 22nd and reach Thrissur on 23rd. Then it will pass through Palakkad on September 26th and 27th and enter Malapuram on September 28th. Over the course of this Yatra, uh, Mr. Gandhi is looking to gain more allies in opposition parties, particularly leaders like Nidesh Kumar and Sharad Pawar. Uh, yeah, I mean, I find this uh, very interesting. Uh, Abhishek, I mean, the elections are in 2024, but, uh, you know, we see that, uh, you know, a uh, couple of years uh, before itself, I mean, preparations have started, right? Uh, do you think it's uh, because, I mean, there might be some dispute in terms of who could be the face of the elections in 2024 for the opposition? Yeah, I think uh, Congress party has got a lot of criticism over the last, say, decade that, you know, they have lacked the energy and uh, presence and, you know, being out there, you know, to uh, fight about, about uh, you know, on various issues uh, compared to the BJP, right, who are like a 24-7, 365 total machine, right? So, uh, at least this looks like some sort of a beginning, a new beginning Rahul Gandhi is doing, right? So, this uh, Yatra is supposed to cover 12 states and uh, distance of 3,500 kilometers, uh, so which will take like uh, about five months. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's they're kind of uh, going from Kanyakumari to Kashmir. So, yeah, quite an interesting initiative. Uh, obviously, uh, what we'll get is, you know, weekly controversies. And so, I think the last we had. Had uh, one video that went viral where he was trying to understand about uh, the Holy Trinity from Mr. who has a controversial past. Uh, then uh, his uh, foreign T-shirt also became uh, subject of news and you know political back and forth. So yeah, I think we will continue to get uh, kind of headlines every week as he uh, goes along with this. Right now, I guess he's in some sort of home turf, right? Where he's himself an MP from Kerala and con the Congress party is somewhat strong there, right? Um, so it will be interesting to see uh, when he goes further north, uh, like kind of uh, react party and uh, during. Yeah, the meeting with uh, Pastor George Pone, I think, became a huge controversy last week. Um, some of them were saying that, hey, I mean, his mother is a Catholic, so he should probably know all of this stuff. So they were pretty dumbfounded that he was dumbfounded uh, about some of this stuff, right? Um, yeah. And uh, I also saw on Twitter that somebody said, uh, you know, he might po potentially contest from Kanyakumari, uh, which is a 40% Christian demographic. Um, and so, I mean, this was uh, just a way of, you know, currying favor, uh, perhaps with the uh, constituents, right? So, yeah, definitely interesting. But uh, yeah, I mean, good that he started up uh, early, right? I mean, unlike the last time where, you know, in between Thailand trips and whatnot, I mean, he, he somehow found time to campaign. Uh, right. All right. Moving on. Um, both the Indian and Chinese troops have pulled back from a dis disputed border area in the Himalayas. High-level peace talks that began after the 2020 clashes have finally finally proved fruitful as forces have now disengaged in the Gogra Hot Springs area. Uh, the two defense ministries confirmed troops were disengaging from respective sides in the area of Gogra Hot Springs uh, in a move conducive to the peace and tranquility in the border areas. India is still on war footing with the neighboring giant, uh, even as the two 
two armies have currently disengaged, China is engaged in a frenzied buildup in its military infrastructure and capabilities in the region. Uh, Nirav, what do you think this is? I mean, this is uh, a case of, you know, diplomacy paying off or do you think that we should tread carefully uh, and not take it, you know, complacently? Okay, so a couple of things. Uh, one is that uh, this terrain in the winter gets terribly cold, right? So uh, there is like really a good, uh, sensible thing for both sides to disengage. But it's a classic prisoner's dilemma problem where if one side moves out and the other side doesn't, etc. Then you could see encroachment by the other side. So as you said, this is a good diplomatic solution. I think uh, China has a lot going on on its plate. Uh, it has uh, like a lot of tensions. Their, their focus is on Taiwan. Uh, the Chinese population doesn't really care about India and would not even be able to place uh, these places on the map. Whereas India is quite reasonably populated, though not that much. Ladakh is fairly sparsely populated. India has like a large population center along uh, like say uh, UP, Bihar, near the Chinese border, near Nepali border, Uttarakhand, etc. Right. So, uh, so that's the other thing. I think basically the solution for all of this is going to be diplomatic and in like the global uh, diplomacy, right? I think India has a kind of a little bit of a, a slight, if I would say, upper hand. I think a lot of the world is a little bit anti-China right now, but China flexes a lot of muscles due to the sheer power of its economy, right? So, uh, yeah, I think it's a sensible solution. Uh, I would say that you can't really call it a victory or anything for either side. And uh, who knows, uh, next April, maybe we could see some other things, right? So I think as we get closer to the winter, we are in September, probably after November to April or something, it's like really uninhabitable. Uh, India has forces at Siachen Glacier. So Indian troops are battle-hardened, but I think for either side, just the cost and uh, the logistics, etc. is way too expensive in terms of human cost as well as like actual monetary cost, right? So uh, I just think it's a sensible thing. Diplomacy is kind of uh, called a stalemate and both sides have kind of de-escalated. So it's a good thing for all. Right. But uh, we, we had also discussed earlier that there could be some kind of a flare-up in the build-up to the elections, right? Uh, in October. Uh, yeah, so... Seems... So right now, it seems, I think people are a lot more focused about like the rolling lockdowns in China. And uh, like you are seeing lockdowns in like a very large city, Chengdu, uh, which is near the southeast part of Tibet, near northeastern India. Uh, you're seeing a lot of like rolling lockdowns in different places. I think COVID, consolidation of power in Beijing and uh, tensions in Taiwan, etc. Tensions in the US on trade. I think those are all the primary uh, kind of focus areas, right, for China. So even for China, it kind of makes sense uh, to de-escalate on this side, uh, have lesser issues. Uh, they also have like a drought. So China is having its own set of problems. And uh, for them, it kind of makes sense. And to be frank, people really don't care. And uh, people don't really elect the leaders. It's the Communist Party leaders, who, uh, the Politburo, which elects the leaders. So uh, let's see, 16th October is their uh, National Party. Now. So, yeah. All right. Uh, staying with the thread of national security and defense, uh, a Bloomberg report claims that India is now running out of weapons due to the Make in India policy. The report quotes officials with knowledge of the matter within quotes, uh, stating that the push to boost domestic manufacturing is leaving India vulnerable to persistent threats from China and Pakistan. Stating that India can no longer import some critical weapon systems, the sources state that the push for manufacturing risks uh, leaving India critically short of helicopters by 2026 and short of 100 fighter jets by 2023. The report went on to state that to 
quote, make in India for defense isn't thought through properly and that there isn't much to show for it except a good slogan. Well, uh, Abhishek, even if we were to, uh, you know, um, superimpose on this the fact that, hey, I mean, there could be some vested interests uh, that, may, that might actually benefit from India not pursuing the indigenous route, uh, right? I mean, is there is there, is there there something to it? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, hard for us laymen to say uh, exactly uh, what is the right balance, right? Clearly, under this government, uh, we have decided that it's important to be self-reliant in the long run, right? And self-reliance, uh, weaponry and missiles, you know, uh, these defense area is definitely probably the most strategic uh, initiative any country could take and therefore uh, you know uh, banning of certain uh, you know weapons of various types right is like uh, giving a leg up or a or a sort of incentive for domestic uh, defense manufacturers to step up now it is quite possible that uh, while uh, they may be doing more it may not be adequate um, if you recall i think earlier this year we had discussed about this whole reform of uh, uh, india's uh, government owned uh, defense uh, manufacturing companies right there was a large scale consolidation to i think three or four companies and all that i mean definitely reforms are happening on some end it is also possible that uh, there may be you know term uh, sort of lack of supply or some sort of de- depletion of inventory as you said it is also possible that you know this story has uh, in from uh, defense manufacturers who would rather you know india continue with its older policy of uh, importing much more uh, one of the things india has also been saying is that india welcomes foreign manufacturers to set up shop within india right and manufacture within india. Uh, so yeah that's also something to be uh, how things work out on that uh, but yeah uh, I mean, this is also one of those stories, right, where uh, it's kind of easy to create panic as well, right, where, uh, because defense of the country is not something where, uh, you know, people would like, uh, you know, that the government is taking a lot of, in the long run, uh, self-sufficiency is basically the only way forward, right, because you never know uh, in a war, right, uh, what happens if your uh, uh, allies or the countries that you rely on, you know, take the other side, right? And we we are going to discuss the whole F-16 uh, Pakistan-related discussion later in the show, right? So, you know, there's always uh, sides of this. And so it'll be interesting to watch out. Perhaps the government uh, might come up with a clarification the situation or the story is creating, uh, uh, you know, issues as well. Something to yeah. watch out. No, it's a hard, hard challenge, right? I mean, it's one of those uh, mm-hmm. short-term pain, long-term gain sort of uh, measures, if you ask me, right? I mean, the defense acquisition uh, plan and so on. Right. I mean, uh, I think the the majority of the problem is with the the air capabilities that we have. Right. I mean, so uh, just reading from the report, it says by 2030, the Indian Air Force may be left with less than 30 fighter squadrons, well below the 42 that we need. Right. And uh, HL can at this point. One more thing is like the massive politicization of every major arms purchase. Right. Like Mm. we saw how uh, the whole Rafale non-scandal made into a major story right so uh, i mean defense chase is often riddled with all this right so people are 
often uh, doing trying to do defense purchase like they would purchase raw materials for a normal manufacturing organization right there is uh, like people are saying should we just go for an l1 kind of a thing i mean there are certain th- things where you know uh, the political will is definitely needed and while uh, you know the government has been pretty steadfast on this uh, this whole politicization of major arms purchases toll as well right in terms of the speed of decision making or even future purchases right people become very right of uh, kind of no but i think the government has also done its bit to sort of fast track some of these things right i mean if you look at the position of chief of defense staff uh, right the former general bipin rawat was uh, the almost a secretary rank uh, reporting to uh, you know um, the nsa and prime minister modi right i mean all of these were done to sort of fast track some of these things uh, and also i think see make in india is a misnomer here right because i think uh, if you look at the defense acquisition council they've laid out three or four types of uh, procurement right one is to buy projects outright right uh, the other is to buy and make projects which is you buy a licensed uh, uh, you know uh, uh, you know whatever aircraft or whatever it is and then you figure out some kind of indigenous development of that ecosystem right whether it's spare parts or servicing or whatever and the the final thing is to make projects which is uh, indigenously produced and um, designed here in india right so so i think we have to qualify that as well um, also i mean you can't rule out all of these stories uh, being seeded by those who have certain vested interests as well right i mean there's certainly a lot of money at stake and certainly there are people who can gain from this um, right um, i only feel that you know the journalism could be a little more responsible right especially when you're writing about national security matters um, to write in the way that uh, you know forget about bloomberg i think you know they just published a report and also i mean you know foreign media is what it is but uh, the indian uh, you know indian newspapers media has just picked it, picked this up like verbatim and published some of this stuff with a little bit of editorializing right um, so yeah i mean i th- i think you know it calls for a little more responsibility on that front moving on uh, queen elizabeth the second has died aged 96 after reigning for 70 years um, queen elizabeth ii's uh, tenure as head of state spanned post war austerity the transition from empire to commonwealth and the end of the cold war uh, her reign spanned 15 prime ministers starting with mr winston churchill uh, and including miss truss the newly appointed prime minister of the uk her son now king charles and his wife camilla now queen consort uh, addressed the nation from buckingham palace on friday uh, where he owed lifelong service to the nation um, nirav you know there was uh, plenty of uh, reactions uh, you know left to right uh, all across the board uh, on twitter and elsewhere um, but you know what is uh, queen elizabeth's uh, legacy yeah so i think see what queen elizabeth has done is uh, if you actually see you will not remember any sort of a memorable speech or any sort of a strong stand which she took because she actually played the role of like the royals uh, kept she relinquished power to the parliament and the prime minister and uh, she basically was the titular figurehead uh, which what uh, uk is a constitutional monarchy it is uh, kind of by always being in the background she kept people together i think there's a lot of in the uk though i'm not uh, i don't understand why but in the uk she has a lot of support there are a lot of royalists etc right so kind of maintain decorum uh, i think 
see there is the whole tv series about her the crown so that talks about her life and she's had a long life right like 96 years of age uh, she is also like a very accidental uh, monarch uh, when she was born she was very far away from the line to the throne but her uncle uh, wanted to marry the hollywood actress wallace simpson who was a divorcee so that is why he relinquished his uh, Uh, seat to the throne, and uh, then her father, who was King George the Sixth, became a king, and he passed away at a younger age in 1952. So that's when she came on to the throne, and uh, she's been there for 70 years. They just had her platinum jubilee in like large celebration. So uh, that is there. She's been through like a lot of controversy, etc. as well. And uh, so to put it that way, she her legacy is I think about uh, keeping things together. continuity and always being like present in the background uh, even her her pictures are always seen right she's been waving from the balcony of the buckingham palace etc but rarely have you heard like a strong speech or like her taking like a very big stand so that is that uh, but as in she's played the role uh, what are expected out of her and she's done that and like uh, despite like a lot of smaller controversies uh, she sailed through all of it uh, uh, peacefully india has actually uh, so apart from being like the titular head of uk she's also head of uh, other a few of the commonwealth countries which consider her as their uh, constitutional head australia and canada jamaica being some of them uh, you have india also declaring like a holiday on like 11th of september and this is quite a lot of backlash right today so now thing is one is it is a sunday two is while india was a colony there was a lot of extractive policies which are done even before but uk has been like a uh, what do you say like a monarchy but with parliament having power since like uh, elected leaders having power since 1215 right like uh, almost 800 years ago and so whatever that was there was also part of it was east india company part of it was the parliament and those prime ministers and so you shouldn't be blaming her for sins of say her forefather second thing is india is trying to sign an fta with the uk india is trying to build bridges and have friends so if a head of state passes away in another country it's like a in that way like a goodwill gesture so i think i would just take it as at that value right because so that is there uh, and uh, finally now we've got king charles the 3 Uh, as he would be called and uh, he comes to the throne at the age of 73 the oldest monarch and he's waited the longest uh, so that's going to be interesting he will probably want to uh, he's been a little more vocal on things like climate change and urban design etc he always been a little more vocal about his views so let us see if he changes his uh, the way the monarchy was being run and uh, what he actually does which charity causes does he choose to support etc right so that would be very interesting and yeah uh, i think see it is uh, like the president of india has just titular powers i think the queen also just has like titular powers so it's it's just what it is and uh, uh, all credit to her for uh, going through like a lot of change and turbulence and she could have abdicated the throne if she wanted to but she chose not to and there was like a nice continuity so uh, that's very interesting and yeah uh, uh, may her soul rest in peace she was 96 but then she was still you know discharging some of her stately duties right i mean in fact couple of days before she passed she had also met the uh, new prime minister uh, listras as well um yeah so couple of things to add uh, to whatever you said one is that i think 
you know a lot of the foreign policy we can't solve it like twitter fights and twitter debates right i mean it's uh, you know i i heard ridiculous uh, things that you know hey india should just not not bother about it or you know uh, everything ranging from colonial uh, legacy to whatever was thrown uh, return the kohinoor all of that stuff i mean it's just nonsense i mean um, the uk is a modern nation right and we need to deal with the uk right we've just overtaken them as uh, the fifth largest economy right now and uh, any kind of signaling from us uh, is going to be helpful right i mean you're not going to win by uh, badgering your uh, uh you know, the people that you want to negotiate with absolutely right and uh, uh, you know prime minister trust has also acknowledged the fact that india has moaned as well right so i think some of this uh, stuff is best relegated to twitter i suppose right uh, foreign policy has to have a modicum of like restraint uh, and that's that's a, that's a good thing and the second in terms of this whole colonial legacy and what not right i mean i think yes we should never forget uh, but we should also you know recognize the fact that the modern nation of uk is different right i mean it's a different entity in that sense right uh, uh, and we should learn to deal with them right uh, and we should use it very wisely right um, but but the fact that you know i mean you're going to hold these people against uh, you know uh, for for whatever that uh, you know maybe like four generations five generations or 10 generations back did is not going to serve as any good right i mean especially considering that there are so many mutual overlaps now with the fta coming up later this year and stuff so so yeah all right uh, moving on reversing president trump's changes president biden has approved a 450 million dollar f16 fighter jet fleet program to pakistan uh, the reasoning for this was to quote sustaining pakistan's capability to meet current and future counter terrorism threats the proposed sale does not include uh, any new capabilities weapons or munitions instead providing life cycle maintenance and sustainment packages for us origin platforms such as the f16s this is the first major security assistance to pakistan after trump in 2018 had announced to stop all defense and security assistance to pakistan alleging that islamabad was not a partner in its fight against terrorism uh, abhishek does pakistan use f16 for uh, anti terrorism activities yeah so quite a funny sort of reasoning given uh, but the fact is that from a us point of view uh, it is in their interest right that um, uh, the f16s uh, remain functioning in a sort of uh, capable manner right because ultimately uh, any usage of these high tech uh, high end aircrafts are basically also advertisements for future sales right and so for example if you re- recall the whole uh, incident after balak right like uh, there was this whole uh, talk of whether india did or did not shoot down uh, one of their f16s and so it was like a big story of where pakistan was trying to show pictures of their inventory of uh, aircraft saying that you know everything is intact and all that so uh, yeah i mean i think uh, number one uh, is the thing that uh, the us and probably lockheed martin would like the f16s to remain null and in condition for as long as uh, secondly i mean i don't know if there is some sort of signaling being done to india about uh, the whole um, you know india's uh, stance uh, with regard to the ukraine russia war uh, i don't know like obviously the us has officially commented that you know in the india india is free to take its position and all that possible that you know the biden administration is kind of uh, uh, gently or probably uh, covertly signaling to uh, india that look we are uh, we can always you know start or restart our uh, 
partnership pakistan so yeah kind of interest uh, development it's also an interesting coincidence that uh, you know this is uh, coming in after ayman al zawahiri was killed right and which which followed uh, the isi chief uh, nadi manjoon's visit to washington uh, so all of this kind of uh, you know uh, coincidence of coincidences uh, like a series of coincidences uh, happening and uh, the us uh, famously says right there's uh, there, there ain't uh, no such thing as a free lunch uh, so obviously i mean this is in return for something um, yeah. so just adding a couple of things right i think pakistan has given like a little bit of small symbolic aid to ukraine uh, in terms of some weapons uh, india has been buying russian oil so that's also something so kind of like trying to play so us is also trying to play off uh, like these two nations etc and i think uh, to be fair the pakistani generals do very well for themselves they given like the size of their economy uh, the they leverage their geographical location and they played off uh, two large powers china and us quite well so it's maybe it helps the pakistani army probably not the pakistani population but uh, so yeah they have kind of uh, used their leverage quite well given uh, the fact that uh, their economy isn't like that big a leverage for them yeah it's pretty sad at one level right that pakistan is kind of reduced to being an attack dog of the us and china uh, right and as you mentioned i think the the generals and the army seem to do well but uh, what about the population right i mean given the recent disasters that we've seen uh both on the uh, in the floods uh, floods as well as you know the economy crumbling as well um all right uh moving on um uh, in some sad news uh, ex tata chairman uh, cyrus mistry died earlier this week prompting new found interest in seat belt laws in india uh, the businessman was killed in a car accident in maharashtra's palgad last sunday along with mr mr uh, mistry jahangir pandole anahita pandole and darais pandole were present in the car union transport minister nitin gadkari uh, has stepped in emphasizing the need to follow rules especially the seat belt regulation the government is also in talks with car makers to introduce six airbags as well as making seat belt alarms for the back seat mandatory uh need of this is pretty sad news right yeah so uh one thing is like uh it's a very very sad news like cyrus mistry only 54 was uh also like earlier chairman of tata but also was running the shahpurji palanji like the construction business uh that arm and uh, like this is like completely avoidable tragic death and uh, you had uh, so you had so one thing is like about road safety is you've seen a lot of improvement on indian roads but in patches so you the cars can go up to at a very high speed in certain patches and then they have to decelerate uh, there has been a very insightful article about like the area being accident prone because just ahead the flyover it splits into a v so the car had to swerve a bit and then the width suddenly from a wider road becomes narrower so there's an l shape so basically you have to like come into the lanes have to merge so maybe better road marking maybe continuous widening and not having these small bottlenecks here and there because what has happened is that on the uh, better stretches the cars can go very fast but uh, speed of any system or uh, the throughput is basically the bottleneck so i think uh, while the road transport ministry has done very good job on like highways uh, mumbai to ahmedabad stretch is part of the other expressway being con- constructed like mumbai to baroda to delhi right so i think uh, we need like a told expressway as well right so kind of uh, we need additional capacity and then finally as you mentioned uh, it's about also 
better awareness of safety. So one is uh, airbags in the rear. And a lot of people did not know that airbags are not activated uh, till like the seatbelt is fastened, right? So wearing seatbelts, not just for the front seat, also for the rear seats, right? So a lot of these things have to come in. Uh, we all have to be a little more aware. It's so sad that such a tragic death has led to like uh, people getting a little more aware of uh, this thing. And uh, now the marginal cost, the cost of airbags in a car is not that high compared to the cost of car itself. If it is given as a default or regulations make it mandatory. So I think all new cars having airbags, etc. would avoid that. But as I said, we need to avoid the accident in itself in the first place. And if an accident happens, how to ensure safety of the passengers. So uh, a lot of thought has to go through, but we are improving in an incremental fashion. I think we have to continue this whole uh, process of improvement and uh, increase road safety. And like uh, last year, I don't know the case. I've driven on this road uh, a few times and uh, it's one of the very highly packed corridor from Mumbai to Palgar to like Surat to Baroda to like Ahmedabad, right? It's a very, a lot of big cities are on the way. It's a very packed corridor. And uh, we also need some laws on like lane discipline on these highways with a lot of trucks uh, told to stay on the left, etc. Right? Because rash lane changing can also lead to accidents. So I think uh, that is something uh, that is needed. So yeah, it's just a little lot more awareness, a lot more improving bottlenecks, better signage, better lane markers that you know that the lane is merging, right? So I think a lot of that is needed. And uh, finally, in the cars itself, uh, a little more emphasis on safety by the passengers and the drivers. Yeah, it's it's sad that something like this had to lead to all of those uh, uh, things being in focus again, right? I mean, all safety standards and everything, but better late than never, I guess. Um, speaking about Mr. Mystery, uh, you know, Sonali Jaitli Bakshi, who is uh, the former uh, minister Arun Jaitli's uh, daughter, uh, had penned a very nice tribute about him, uh, you know, uh, talking about the kind of person he was, uh, very affable, uh, very personable, uh, right? Uh, incidentally, Sonali was part of uh, the legal team, uh, his legal team. And uh, uh, yeah, seems like a person who was kind of down to earth, uh, right? Even though given that, you know, he was at the helm of uh, two major industry, industrial families, right? I mean, both Shapoji Palanji and the uh, Tata uh, entity. Um, right. Uh, hey, before we move on, I think, uh, you know, the Queen's death sort of overshadowed the fact that we have a new Prime Minister in uh, the UK, uh, right? Um, so, Nina, what do you make of uh, Liz Truss? Oh, yeah, sure. So, a couple of things. So, Liz Truss uh, is also like quite a polarizing figure in the UK because as a student, earlier she was part of uh, like the Liberal Democrats, the LDP, which is the third party after like uh, uh, the Conservatives and the Labour, right? Then she moved towards the Conservatives. Uh, then in 10 years ago, 2012, she had said like an article about like free Britannia and uh, uh, have like uh, very much like uh, uh, free trade, open trade and like uh, going towards a laissez-faire economy, etc. Right? Uh, less regulations. So very, very right-wing on like economics. Uh, she was, uh, first she was anti-Brexit, but once the voters mandate came in, she switched tack saying that, yes, like now given that the people's mandate has to be respected. So she said, okay, let's work on getting out of the EU, etc. Now, lastly, why she said about what she said 10 years ago was in a different world, in a different context. She's coming in as a prime minister at one of the uh, most fragile times with high energy costs, uh, 
uh, a lot of uh, worries about a recession, very high inflation in the UK. So she and her uh, uh, treasury, uh, the chancellor of the exchequer, as they call them, uh, as they call their finance minister, uh, is an Nigerian origin person. And they've come up with a plan to cap utility bills in the UK. And uh, this is uh, very much an interventionist and a uh, kind of more fiscal spending, what you would expect maybe from the Labour government. But what this says is she's a pragmatic person. This is what I wanted to highlight. That at different points in time, uh, you should not be judged by the choices you made because they were at a different time in a different world under different circumstances. So that is one thing. Uh, what uh, I think there's going to be continuity in the policy towards India. Her closest competitor was uh, Rishi Sunak, whose uh, wife still holds Indian citizenship and uh, whose in-laws are living in India right now. And he's of Indian origin. So obviously, it would be a little bit different. But I think the continuity remains from uh, Boris Johnson's policies. Uh, we are probably about to sign an FTA pretty soon. So uh, that will happen. But I think her focus right now is very much domestic. Uh, go through the winter with the shortages of gas, uh, energy rationing, and trying to cap bills, uh, which the utility companies can draw down on loans. So there's a lot of it. A lot of it is accounting jugglery as well, uh, which is the subsidies are uh, given as loans by banks, and the banks have like a government guarantee. So trying to like keep it off balance sheet so that uh, UK's uh, debt to GDP is also rising quite a bit. So she's coming in at a very tough time. It is a crown of thorns, and uh, in terms of popularity, the Labour Party is rising. Uh, the Labour leader, Keith Starmer, is being more popular than any of the Conservative leaders. So, uh, that is that. Uh, it remains to be seen how she navigates through these tough times. But, uh, yeah, wish her all the best. And, uh, like, uh, in terms of uh, politics, the Conservative Party, no matter who the leader, is a little bit more pro-India versus the Labour Party. We had the uh, talk with the Conservative friends of the Commonwealth, uh, Sunil Sharma as well. So, he highlighted uh, this part as well. And, uh, yeah, so... I think uh, she is a capable leader, having been the foreign secretary. Obviously, she put Britain's interests first. Uh, she was uh, earlier critical about uh, uh, India buying Russian uh, energy, oil. And her remarks were uh, rebutted by S. Jai Shankar as well. Europe buys more in an afternoon than India bought in the early part of 2022. But uh, I believe uh, she's a sensible leader. And like when the facts change, she changes her mind. So that's a good quality to have in a leader. Though like her opponents are saying that she's changing uh, uh, track quite often. But uh, I think it's just a sensible thing to do given the circumstances. Yeah, it's a, it's a crown of thorns, no less, right? I mean, with energy prices, uh, you know, going up and stuff. Uh, we'll probably do a follow-up with uh, Sunil of this year, Fossi, on uh, you know everything that's happened in the UK, and certainly there's a lot right that has happened. Uh, so do stay tuned for that. Um, meanwhile, we have a couple of uh, fascinating episodes coming up. Uh, I spoke to K. Sudarshan, who is the managing director of EMA Partners, which is an exec search firm in India, perhaps the top five here, uh, right? And also Abhishek Astana, who you guys may know as at Gabbar Singh on Twitter. Uh, he's a social media influencer and also an entrepreneur. Uh, we spoke about the state of work, you know, I mean, uh, what's what's changed post-COVID, you know, what are the what are the attitudes of uh, some of the younger professionals towards work? Uh, is remote for is remote work here to stay, work from home, work from office, all of those things, uh, right? I mean, it was a fairly free-flowing conversation. Uh, we spoke about, uh, you know, some of the uh, comments that were made uh, by, let's say, Rishad Premji, the chairman of Wipro on moonlighting. 
about Shant- uh, from Shantanu Deshpande of the Bombay Shaving Company on how how hard you should work, so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, uh, do check it out. We're going to put this out uh, this week. We also have an upcoming uh, episode with uh, Shaunak Agardekar, Agarkedkar, sorry. Uh, uh, and he is, uh, you know, uh, a spy thriller writer. Uh, the so so he's got you know a, a series of three books uh, right let Butto eat grass I think third one has come out third one or fourth one has uh, just come out and we're going to be talking to him uh, uh, soon fascinating stuff again um, so yeah plenty of good content coming up uh, don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platforms it helps uh, more people discover our content um, from Abhishek Neeraj and myself uh, until next week do stay safe take care and Jai Hind.